everybody. Let's uh, check in here and make sure all is well. Hello. Welcome to Critical Q&A for this week. Uh, it is the 29th of August, 2021. Uh, hey, everybody, see your comments here. In fact, let's switch over to our comments uh, screen so we can get them up on the screen there. Um, it's funny how the comments don't start appearing until the show actually starts. So the comments from people prior to the show starting, I can still see, but they don't show up on the screen. But anyway, hey, everybody. How are you today? Um, I'm seeing uh, we're joined by all the usual suspects, all my usual critics out there. Happy to see you, Steve and Cynthia and everybody else. Debbie, um, I wanted to, excellent, thank you, Xion. Um, I am doing good today. Today, I am, Chris Shelton is in a good mood. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good day. I've got a good week planned. I, you know, things are Things are pretty under control, and I'm pretty happy about that. So I always like it when I'm, I'm kind of feeling like I'm on top of things, even though it's illusory because <laughs> I got so much stuff backlog that I got to get to. But I'm just giving myself the space to get to it in my own time instead of feeling constantly under pressure ah, 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 all the time. <laughs> You know, it drives me crazy. It's so stressful. Um, so, you know, so having a bit of a better attitude about that and being able to feel okay about that and, and just getting the work done, taka, 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 but, you know, maybe not as quickly as I would like to or anybody else would like me to, but whatever. Um, so good morning, everybody. Um, I see we had some questions coming in already, and I wanted to just uh, start, I wanted to address the ones that were from pre-show because there were a couple kind of fun ones. Um, Flint asks uh, a, a fun one about, um, let's get into it here, uh, Jawas or Ewoks, who can kick the most ass? You did ask anything, right? So, um, okay, so my answer to the question of Jawas or Ewoks would be uh, Jawas. I think Jawas could be more, uh, potentially more destructive. <laughs> I mean, they have those gigantic sand crawlers. Those things could just mow right over, you know, a whole bunch of stuff, including uh, Ewoks, I suppose, if they were battling. But I, and Jawas also have tech, and Ewoks don't. Ewoks are primitive, so that's why I call Jawas as the winner on that one. All right. Um, and Debbie asked a great question. Would you ever write a book similar to Robert J. Lifton's on thought control, but easier for the general public to understand? Yes, I absolutely would, and it's something I've actually thought about is how to um, translate some of this. I mean, Lifton's book is not complicated. It's not deep academia. And it is pretty accessible, but it is not exactly, you know, popular reading. It was popular. I guess it was a bit of a bestseller when it first came out back in the 50s or 60s. Excuse me. Um, but yes, I would love to. I don't know that I would want to, you know, just rewrite Lifton, but certainly put a book together about coercive control for everybody out there. And uh, I think that would be, I think that would be a, a, a good thing to do. Okay, um, so let's see what we got here. I'm just going to start going down the comments here and uh, and see what we've got. Um, da da da. Oh yeah, yeah, Shimoda. Yes, exactly. The uh, the thought you're you're commenting on the uh, 
Thoth tarot deck that was put together by this is Alistair Crowley's tarot deck and that's why I got it because it was the tarot deck that L. Ron Hubbard refers to and utilized and I I was just on a whim I picked it up at the at the bookstore the other day because I was I had this talk with John Atack during the week just he and I just a private conversation and we were talking a bit about Hubbard and the occult and Diana and and the empress and the the occult beliefs of the guardian spirit that Hubbard was obsessed with and seemed to have for most of his life the idea of the guardian spirit was something that um Apparently, he talked about as somebody somebody was relating a story about how why was L. Ron Hubbard a fearless uh, barnstorming pilot. And one of the reasons given or one of the stories told was that he believed that this guardian spirit, this uh, this this figure of a red haired woman in a green dress or something um, was on the wing of his plane, protecting him. Like he was not going to be hurt, injured, you know, have an accident in any way. And he just went balls to the wall because he had his guardian spirit watching over him. So I guess this was a, this, this apparently could have been a long-term belief of his and, and, and there are other things he was involved in, um, that indicate that he, um, was, uh, pretty serious about his occult beliefs. And that the Jack Parsons venture was not just a one-off or a con, although it was that too. That's the thing about Hubbard is he was always double and triple layering everything he was doing with different layers of deception and and con. You know, that was his way. But um, but apparently these occult beliefs are quite real and uh, that, that he thought were, were very real and um, and it's the very framework and foundation of so much of Scientology. And and us poor schlep Scientologists didn't realize that or know anything about it. You know, so it is kind of fascinating to me to look into that. And that's that's sort of what, what got me to <laughs> purchase a tarot deck. <laughs> all right. Um, all hail seven. Yes, that is correct. He's around here somewhere, but I don't have seven cam for, for this show. Um Okay, so let's just go down the comments here, and I will just start answering questions as we go. Um, just bees for now. Chris, I think I asked this before. When when you was in the Sea Org, have they ever got physical with you? Yeah. Yeah, I was assaulted in the Sea Org. Um, uh, Jenny Linson slapped me around, and I was push-shoved, broke my finger, um, the very tip of my uh, middle finger, was broken um, by a when we on the RPF when I was carrying some wood with somebody had a little accident so that wasn't necessarily intentional but you know what was intentional not letting me go to the hospital for 24 hours uh, while I writhed literally writhed in pain all night long that night with an untreated unhelped broken finger uh, and I had to try to sleep that night and tough it out and I was told straight up uh, you know. <laughs> suck it up basically is what i was told You're, the pain is an illusion your pain is a is an illusion it's just in your head uh okay well it was very strongly overpowering my head all night long and it wasn't until the next morning when it was inflamed uh you know kind of inflated that uh the one of the sea org members who was actually in charge of the rpf saw me and was like what the hell 
And I was like, yeah, I think I should go to the hospital. And she's like, yeah, I think you should. And this guy goes in and goes, no, he's fine. And she's like, shut up. He's going to the hospital. Like, like that's what was required to get me to uh, out of there. So, yeah, I, they got physical with me. Yeah, that happened uh, a lot. Um, okay. Thank you, Sean. That's awesome. Um, you know, how it compares uh, Shimoda, the, the pressure that I put on myself, you ask here, constant pressure, how does it compare to the constant pressure in the Sea Org? It's not, it's not even close. Um, I don't have an external threat on me the same way now that I did when I was in the Sea Org. I mean, it's, it's not, it's apples and oranges. It's, it's not even remotely the same. I exert a lot of pressure on myself. I guilt myself a lot. I put myself under... Uh, a lot of pressure to produce and get good content out there and study and do the work I do. And I, um, um, cause I got a lot of things. I got a lot of goals I want to pull off now. I got a lot of things I want to do. Um, and that's where my pressure comes from. In the Sea Org, the pressure was very different. It was do or die. It was every day. If you don't, you know, get these things done, then the world's gonna end. You know, it's very different kind of consequences. If I don't get something done today, well, it sucks, but I can still get it done tomorrow. <laughs> you know, it's not the end of the world. Um, uh, in the Sea Org, if you don't get things done on time, it, your world could end. Uh, it could end in very interesting ways. I mean, going to the RPF, getting kicked off of your job and, and being relegated to the galley or something, getting busted, getting you know thrown on decks or something. I mean, it's your life could change in significant ways if you don't get certain things done. So um, so it's, it's a much lighter level of, of consequence now. You know, if I disappoint you guys or I try to get something done and it doesn't get done in time, you guys go out of your way to bend over backwards to tell me it's okay. If I, you know, don't feel up to doing a show or feeling sick or something, I've been like, oh, guys, I'm, I'm really sorry. I wish I, you know, I, I can't do the show this week. And you guys have been like, what are you apologizing for? It's okay to take a day off, you know, and I'm always like, ah. Uh, so, so it's very different now than it was then. There was, there was never any acceptable excuse for not getting your work done in the Sea Org. Um, oh, that's an interesting question. M. Alvey asks, do you think the UK coercive control law that freed Sally Chalin could be used for prosecution rather than defense? Yes, it could. Absolutely, it could. That's how the, there's a UK law um, that was passed in 2016, and it is only just really getting going. And it was it's a coercive control law. It's it's domestic violence control and regulation. It's an effort to try to get battered wives and battered husbands some protection and realize that. These are not one-off incidents. A, a single incident of domestic violence is is not coercive control. It's a repeating pattern of domestic violence uh, efforts to um, isolate, manipulate, and control. Okay, those are your three factors of 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 coercive control. If you're going to reduce it down to a, you know, what's the simplest way to describe this? It's it's isolating a person. It's 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 cutting them off from their bank accounts, from their family, from their friends. It's not letting them leave the house. It's not allowing them to have social media accounts. It's it, there's a lot of overbearing, you know, authoritarian kind of stuff that domestic partners can get involved in. And so the UK put a law together that that says 
that's not okay. And, and if we can show a repeating pattern of this kind of coercive behavior where you are isolating and manipulating a person's life to the point that they don't have control of their life anymore, and that case can be made, then um, you are breaking the law. You are violating this person's human rights, and we're not going to put up with that. And that's that's a step forward in that direction, and um, so it could be used proactively, the, the you know, in a prosecutor prosecutorial sense, it could be used that way. Um, the the case being referred to here was a domestic violence case where a woman killed her husband because there had been a repeating pattern of him abusing the hell out of her. And um, and one day she just got sick of it and she shot him, I, I believe is what happened. And she went to jail and she was in jail for a while. And then this law was utilized to show that actually uh, you know, the violence was justified and that she had herself had her life taken away from her by this man. And her response to that was an effort to try to, you know, get her life back. Um, that's how I understand the case. We, we did take a look at it, study it a little bit in my class. And so that's why I know about it. And that's where I'm advantaged in doing a UK program is the law was in the UK. And so I've actually read the law and, and studied it. And it's, it's, I think, like I said, I think it's a step in the right direction. And we are starting to see some law here in the United States reflect this as well. I think Jersey has something they're putting together, and there are other laws. I believe in California there's a coercive control law of some kind being put together. This is, again, mostly in the realm of domestic violence. We don't see this yet being used against religious sects or cults or you know, groups we consider high-control authoritarian groups. It could be, but that's not really how the— um, prosecutors are being or the the legal folks are being briefed on what the law is used for and so it's interesting how you can have a law that says xyz but then how the law is implemented or executed has a lot to do with how xyz gets interpreted or translated uh or contextualized so anyway so that's that's some uh, some stuff i can say about that it's a good question um Oh, Vernon asks, Hi, Chris, since you will get a UK degree, would you consider moving there and working in the UK? I would. I would absolutely consider working in the UK. Um, I There would be some advantages to moving there as far as I'm concerned, as far as uh, access to healthcare, maybe, although I know the UK system isn't perfect. I think it's might be better than the United States in terms of accessibility, but that would be kind of a big benefit that I'd be looking at. Um and of course, the UK. I mean, the UK is great. I'd love to go over to the UK uh, for a while. Um, I don't know that I want to spend the rest of my life there, but if there was work there or an opportunity to do work in a in an educative sense or in a you know kind of what I already do and do it bigger or better or something, I would. Yeah, I'd I'd, I'd be down. Um, okay, that's the best answer, Flint. Excellent, thank you. <laughs> On the Ewoks. Okay, good. Um, okay. Thank you very much, Pearl. Um, Chris, <laughs> what do I think about dating sites for special needs people? I think that that's awesome. And I think that special needs folks should have every possible accommodation and, uh, and access to the same things that all the rest of us have. I think that's, uh, that's what I think about that. Um, okay. Hey, G. Martins, welcome to the live show. Um, okay. 
Couch, thank you very much for that super chat. And our, you ask here, how is our buddy Seven doing? He's doing great. Actually, he's totally chill uh, outside the room over there right now. He was, you know, the thing about the funny thing about Seven is he's obsessed with our um, in our in our we have we have an apartment with two bathrooms and the master bedroom has a bathroom with a little little walk-in closet, a little tiny closet. And um, he's obsessed with getting in there, and he has to get through two doors because we keep him out of there, and he's constantly looking for ways to get in. And it's a little scary how good he is at opening doors. He can't turn knobs, but he can he can figure things out. It's, it's a little scary, actually. Um, okay, Call Sign Maverick asks, I still have some Scientology beliefs. Is it okay to study Scientology independently? Um, is it okay? You're asking me, I guess if you know, is it okay with me? I mean, sure, you know, uh, but why you know, Scientology has a lot of curves in it. I try to tell people, look, do whatever you want, look into it, study it, go down to an org, check it out. I mean, I'm not going to tell you don't do those things because critical thinking demands that you have a wide view and, a, and as good of a view of something as you want. And you should come to your own decisions and conclusions about things. I'm just going to caution you that L. Ron Hubbard's words are not, you know, you can't take them at face value. And what he is presenting to you is not what is really there. And that's the important, that's the danger about Scientology and other cults, you know, these kind of groups, they, is there, there's these curves, there's deception, it's active deceit. And, and if, and if you're not really vigilant about that, then you could end up falling into believing some of the things that he says that are just that, that have no truth connected with them at all. Hubbard's lectures are just rambling just monologues of nonsense. I can't I really can't believe uh, in in reviewing them lately for the work I'm doing for my uh, uni program how much mumbo jumbo garbage there is in those lectures. I mean, I've been I actually screenshotted a couple and, and tweeted them the other day just absolute gibberish um and and if you think that studying this is going to give you a leg up in the li in life or in the world or explain how people operate or how emotions work or how the mind works you're gonna be screwed up you're gonna have confused ideas about things that you're gonna have to then go off and do other study to sort out so that's why i don't recommend diving into hubbard's material but, you know, is it okay? Yeah, it's okay. Of course it is. You know, do what you want. Um, just know that, you know, just be careful. That's all. Okay. Um, okay, Jonathan Perry asks, as far as you know, is Osa playing games with Aaron, Aaron Levitt Smith? He posted a video about an hour ago and immediately took it down. Oh, that's interesting. Um I don't know if Osa is playing games with Aaron. That's Aaron Smith Levin, by the way, <laughs> is his name. Um, he's a Clearwater uh, resident, a former Scientologist and former Sea Org member, and a friend of mine. And he um, 
And he was also my junior in the Sea Org, <laughs> which we've talked about and laughed about. Um, anyway, I don't know that Osa is playing games with him as far as uh, a video going up and coming down. Aaron is getting very active right now on his channel again because he is going to be running for city council for Clearwater. And I guess that announcement will come when it's officially uh, able to come. But that is his intent right now. And I absolutely support him in that endeavor. I definitely want him to win, um, win a seat on the council. And um, so he is putting out a lot more content now to uh, promote his name, get his name out there, get people seeing his stuff again. So um, so I don't know what happened this morning, but that's, that's uh, what I know is going on with, with Aaron. All right, Xcyan asks, um, have you heard any of the conspiracy theories about Denver Airport, like the Illuminati headquartered there in underground tunnels built by lizard people? That's exactly what I have heard about DIA. Um, there is all you need to know about DIA and the nefarious, sinister plotting and conspiracy theories around DIA, to me, are symbolized by Blucifer. And um, I wonder if I could um, maybe get a picture of the murderous Mustang of Denver Airport. I mean, literally, you look up Blue Mustang, or if you Google Blucifer, you will get this statue uh, that exists. Um, here it is. Let me see if I can... Um, well, let's see here. How would I do this? Maybe this way. I don't know if you can see behind me. I've got these. Uh, I can't blow them up to full size. But this is a statue of a, of a blue horse with red eyes. I'm not kidding. And this statue is right outside the airport. Everybody who drives in and out of the airport drives past Blucifer. Lucifer is about two stories tall. He's a huge statue. And the guy who made Lucifer died, killed by Lucifer, fallen on him, is the story. And um, that's right outside the airport. So, uh, I think that's insane. <laughs> I think that's crazy. And yet, that's real. That's a real thing. I mean, I could drive out there right now and take a picture next to it. That embodies the crazy weirdness of DIA to me. Whether the Illuminati have underground tunnels there or rich people can all come to DIA and hide under the, under the airport when the apocalypse comes or the zombies come or or the diseases come or whatever, they have a place to go, uh, you know, live and hide in the levels that were built under DIA. And I guess there are trains, underground tunnels and stuff. And this is this is kind of the, the idea. I, I don't know. Obviously, it's kind of a big joke. But um, that's what I know about uh, the tunnels under DIA. <laughs> All right. Um, Oh, wow. I got I to gotta catch up on these. We're, I'm way behind. Okay. Um, Jane Doe. Hi, Chris. Thank you so much for all you do. Do you have any updated info on how big is Scientology in Italy? 
I'm Italian, and it seems it's shrinking everywhere, but here we still have seven Narconon centers. Yeah, Jane, I don't know what to tell you about that. I don't have any hard data about Italy right now, but I can tell you that Italy was always surprisingly enthusiastic about Scientology. Milano Org was one of the biggest, boominest places, and it was because of the body routing, the, the, the going out on the streets and just grabbing people and bringing them in and, and throwing them in. And I mean, the place was overfilling with people. And obviously, gold does their, you know, magic to uh, to stuff their videos with people and stuff and, and sort of inflate the numbers. But Milano was really on fire. Uh, statistically speaking, they were just going crazy. And and it was something about the Italians, because then it kind of go, started going up and down the Italian coast at the different uh, Italian orgs. Um, this was a long time ago. This was like in the 80s and 90s. And um, uh, But it was big. It was, and I think it was, uh, I, we all thought it was real. But uh, anyway, I think, um, I don't know. You don't, you don't see or hear much out of Italy now, Scientologically. So I don't know. I really, I've never really had my finger accurately on the pulse of Italy since I was a Sea Org member. So I couldn't speak more intelligently than about it than that. But, um, but it's not something that they promote or pimp in their events anymore. So that's what gives me the idea that Italy isn't really anything special anymore. They, they are much more oriented on Taiwan and Asia um, than they are on Italy now promotion wise and that tells me that probably numbers wise it's it's probably is shrinking there but that's a guess uh okay um oh good okay good so flint yeah thank you I'm, i really got some very positive responses to the podcast i did with steven tiger this week if you haven't guys if you guys haven't checked it out and you have any interest at all in Christian Apologetics, I highly recommend checking that show out. We had a great talk, and I definitely intend on having Stephen back. Absolutely. We'll probably do another one in a few weeks. Um, okay, just bees for now. Chris Shelton, is emotion abuse subjective depending on the person? Yes, it is. Absolutely. Uh, one man's abuse is another person's pleasure. I mean, we all have different responses. Context is king. If you want to be abused, you can go to places and pay to be physically abused, emotionally abused. And some people think that's like something they want to go experience. Personally, I think that kind of thing comes out of earlier undealt with trauma, but that's my take on it. And I can't say universally that's always true. You know, BDSM is a thing, stuff like that. But I would caution that, you know, I think an effort or desire to want to be punished or abused probably comes out of some earlier trauma. Um, I don't think it's, you know, wildly controversial to say that. Um, however, context is king, right? Always, 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 always. Uh, to some people, having pineapple on their pizza would be an atrocity against, uh, you know, the diet. <laughs> Other people can't get enough of it. So, you know, in the same way, um, emotional abuse can be a relative quantity. You know, some people joke around in a very disparaging manner about one another, and that to them is repartee. It's it's fun, witty, you know, exchanges of banter, but it looks to somebody watching from the outside as though these two people are laying into each other. So, you know, they, a person could look at that and go, well, that's abusive. And, and they both would go, what are you talking about? You know, there's no problem here at all. So it really does matter quite a bit in terms of context. Um, 
there's no getting away from that in 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 actually assessing each individual situation and whether you're dealing with a you know traumatizing abusive situation you got to look at that context and you have to look at informed consent you have to look at you know isolation you have to look at is there deceit or deception going on that in informed consent um things like that you know and if and if you're doing something to somebody else that they don't want or if they knew what you were doing to them they wouldn't want it then you're engaged in a course of activity that you should probably, you know, move away from <laughs> uh, or, you know, you're involved in a relationship you shouldn't be uh, part of because you don't want anybody um, deceiving you. You know, there's nobody, nobody wants to get lied to. And, um, and you don't want a manipulative situation where you are being coerced into um, doing things, saying things, behaving in certain ways that are against your better judgment or the way you want things to be for your life you know and if that's the case then then we are then we've got red flags there and you'd want to you'd want to start dealing with that okay um gotta fly here um Jew Martins asks, do I know if Scientology is growing in South America? I just discovered there's a Scientology church in Sao Paulo. Um, I don't think it's growing in South America. No, I, I don't have any reason to believe that that's the case. Um, okay, let's see here. Um, Stu, question. I'm fascinated by income. How did LRH sell Scientologists the idea that a computer with the power of life and death over humanity would be a really great goal to achieve? Um, well, because, Stu, the idea would be that the, that the computer would be programmed with Scientology principles, see? And so only upstats would, would be rewarded and downstats, people who weren't producing, weren't contributing to society, weren't part of the, of, you know, weren't, weren't, weren't uh, uh, carrying their weight, so to speak, or doing their job, would be targeted. And of course, you know, when in that frame of mind, you always imagine that you're always going to be able to produce. You're always going to be able to to do your job. You're a good person. You're a Scientologist. So the computer would never, ever come after you. It's always how it happens. All right. Um, da, 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 da. All right, Mark Lascombe asks, how common are Scientology teaching materials in normal schools? They are not. Uh, in the vast bulk of schools around the world have nothing to do with Scientology, and thank God. Uh, so, no, they're not that normal, uh, not that common, rather, in normal schools. Um, applied scholastics is the term to watch for. Applied Scholastics is the Scientology front group that pushes Scientology education methods and teaches teachers how to use L. Ron Hubbard's study technology or study methodology uh, in their teaching. And when they encourage the use of dictionaries, encourage the use of a balance of mass and significance and that kind of thing, there's nothing really wrong with that. That's not, that's not nefarious. The problem becomes when you start inserting words like 
this is the only barrier to study. This is the only reason a student stops studying or ceases a course of study is because of the misunderstood word. It's, it's truth claims like that which are dangerous and which are destructive to people's education. But, you know, using a dictionary is a perfectly valid thing to do. There's nothing wrong with that. Scientology just takes it to this, you know, knee plus ultra of, of ridiculousness. So um, so that's, that's what I can say about that. Okay. Um, how much... Oh, that's interesting, Flint. I'm not quite totally sure I understand your question, but let me take it up. Flint asks, how much of your self-pleasure is naturally your personality and how much is Sea Organ forced? Um, no need to answer if you're not sure yet. Well, I'm not sure what you're asking totally, but in terms of um, how much of my self-pleasure, I mean, the things that I get pleasure out of have been pretty consistent through the years. Sea Org or not, what what cults do? Um, it, let me. I guess maybe a, a, a useful way I can comment on this is to say that what you see happen in cults, Scientology or otherwise, is an exaggeration of what's already there, or what can be brought out in a person. You know. So in terms of what's what's naturally there, if you have a natural impulse to help people, if you have a natural impulse to you know to communicate or to do this or to do that then these groups might pull that up out of you or, or, or build that up. But then, of course, they'll build it up to an exaggerated level where it just becomes ludicrous because it's extremist. Um, so in terms of, you know, the things that have given me pleasure, the things that I like to do or enjoy have always kind of been the same, you know, sci-fi, fantasy, writing, movies, you know, imagination, in other words, creativity, that's always been a thing for me. And the Sea Org has um, the Sea Org both pumped up certain aspects of that and pushed or suppressed, you know, other parts, right? In other words, I wasn't writing when I was in the Sea Org for pleasure. I wasn't writing fiction works. Every time I tried to do that, it I never really had the time or the or the headspace for it. Um, but I did get to do a lot of copywriting, and I did get to go help people in this way and that way. I, I don't know. I guess that's that's kind of where I where my head goes with that. You let me know if I'm on the right track in answering answering that. Thank you, Angel Hugger, for your kind words there. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, Brazilians are very Christian. Yeah, I wouldn't really worry too much about Scientology in South America. I really, it's. It's not something that's going to, like, take, take South America by storm. It's, it's just not. Um, oh, pressure. Oh, my God, Flint. You're asking me about pressure, not pleasure. Okay. Okay, got it. All right. When you say self, okay. Totally different question. Um, this is why we go down the comments one by one. Uh, okay, in terms of pressure. Okay. No, pressure is all the Sea Org. <laughs> <laughs> I am not a high-pressure personality, ever. I've never been a high-pressure personality, ever. Um, my entire life, I have resented um, uh, deadlines and targets and pressure. I, I used to say flat out, when I was in the Sea Org, I would tell other Sea Org members, I'd say, look, I realize that there are some people who really thrive 
on pressure. They need it. They want it. They, they it, it excites them. It it, it 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 invigorates them. It gives them a a feeling of oh now I've got something I have to do in a certain amount of time, and they're and they're revitalized and and really you know or or energized by that. And I would say this. I'd say I know that there are some people that this this is how they are, and they really love it. I'm not that guy. I've never been that guy. I hate pressure, um, which is crazy because I was in a pressure cooker for 25 years. I mean, I it's it's insane how not that I actually am, but I you know, sacrificed myself for the cause. And so so that pressure became habituated by the sea organ, by the environment. And um and that's that's kind of still that that's still a little bit there, but a lot, lot, lot less than when I first got out. And that's why you see me a lot chiller now. I think. I I, I think I, I am chiller now than I was a few years ago. Okay. Um Yeah, Shimoda asks, follow up to previous, how do you think that us former cult members can get better at not guilting slash pressuring ourselves like that? I'm aware it's something I still struggle with. Absolutely. Okay, so the way I, the the best advice I have for you, and thank you very much for asking this, it's a great question. Um, The absolute best advice I have is practice doing nothing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I and this is something I tw- I hit on early on, and it's really been it's a it's a long it's a slow burn. It takes a while. Okay, you are re what I'm what what you what you need to know about coming out of a cult situation and the patterns and the habits that we have are you are you have to retrain your brain. And it's a process, and it can be a slow process. It can be a, it can feel like a grinding process sometimes, but that's just part of it. You just keep pushing through. It, it's one of those old Scientology adages. I hate to say this, but it's kind of true that the, you know that 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 uh, the, the way out is the way through. <laughs> you know? Like you practice, you you just practice it, and and I mean literally, it could be. Okay, I'm just going to sit on the couch and I'm just not going to do anything and I'm going to be okay with that for 10 minutes, <laughs> you know, or an hour or you give yourself a day off or, 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 you know, you build yourself up, but you do it gradually. You give yourself successes, you know, you pat yourself on the back when you actually accomplish what you wanted to accomplish, including realizing that you can accomplish nothing and it's really okay. Took me a long time to be able to say that out loud and not, you know, take my and take myself seriously. But it's true. Um, that really that worked for me in a number of ways. But it was something I had to work on. Um, also, finding things that really don't matter a whole lot, but they matter to you. Just you. They don't matter to anybody else. This is what we generally call a hobby <laughs> or something fun to do, right? You is you, is you find those things, and they're gonna. And when you first get out of the cult, 
situation in the cult environment, they're very small. They might not even be there hardly at all. You know, oh, yeah, I used to like watching movies. I used to enjoy making models. I used to like playing chess. I used to like reading books. I used to like painting flowers. I used to enjoy taking walks. I mean, whatever it is, you see, I'm just I'm, I'm throwing out a spectrum of stuff. Whatever it is you you know that you maybe used to enjoy doing or you've always enjoyed doing but had to sort of suppress or pull in, give yourself that. Give yourself little bits and pieces of that and build it up. And you'll find that, uh, at least for me, uh, over time, the balance started kind of coming back into a balance. And I could sort of more ad- accurately and more... Um, productively assess how to do my production, how to do my work, and how to have fun and kind of have my personal work, my personal fun, balance out a bit more. That's that's one way I tackled it that I think anybody can do. Um, there are other things, of course, including go all the way to therapy and addressing past trauma and stuff like that, which are also absolutely you know vital. And as I'm always going to say, Education, learning, learning, learning about what happened to you, how it happened to you, how you took it, how, you know, learning about yourself in the process, and then applying that, you know, into the future so that you don't run into that kind of a situation again. Okay, I hope that was somewhat helpful. Um, Da-da-da-da-da. I don't... Sean Slaughter, did you think it was weird that on the SeaWorld buses they have their backs to the windows so they can't see out of it? Um, that wasn't my experience of being in the Sea Org. I was on a lot of buses in the Sea Org, and we always face forward, so I'm, I, I, I don't think that's a thing uh, in my experience, Sean's. Um, I, I, if I saw a bunch of Sea Org members in a bus with their backs out to the windows like that, I would definitely think that's weird. And if they're doing that now, that's weird. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay, uh, a woman's shelter, very damaged, gay domestic violence. Yeah, Robert, you're asking about um, important things. There's been a lot of studies and a lot of work being done and, and still being done on domestic violence and how women in those relationships are damaged and fixed up. And um, gay domestic violence is a thing. Uh, the percentages are, are kind of out there, and it's um, it's just more coercive control, you know. I mean, to me, gender is not as important in the subject of coercive control as it is for some people. Um, you know, past survivors of domestic violence, mainly women, are the ones who dominate those spaces. Um, and so you tend to get a very female-centric view of domestic violence and the modeling for handling or treating domestic violence is very female-centric. Um, there are problems with that. There are good things about that in terms of the quality of care and the degree of attention given to feminine issues and to um, certain uh, issues on that side of the equation, but it also has a downside to it. And so there have been studies done on that. There is work being done by people who are offering a more balanced you know, not gender-centric view of domestic violence, and I think that's really important work. I mean, literally having studied this this is not something I'm just like kind of tossing off here. 
Um, I think this is actually really important because there are male victims of domestic violence, both um, in the LGBTQ community and in the cis community. And those men are often not taken seriously and the resources available to them. Uh, this also includes boys, right, teens and young children. Uh, male and female, but if the males are, by the very nature of the modeling, excluded from the care that's necessary, you know, that could be, or the treatment that can be given, then we have a problem, and and we do have that problem. It's a real world problem. So, um, so that's what I can comment on about that, as far as you know, some work I'd like to see in that in that direction. Okay, uh, military, da, 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 so take it as abuse. Yes, that's for sure. Um, oh my God, Tony, what are the similarities I see between Hubbard and Trump? They're practically the same guy. <laughs> I mean, uh, as far as similarities, what are the differences? I mean, they even both have red hair. I mean, ugh. they're both serial philanderers. They are both uh, narcissistic uh, megalomaniacs. They are both uh, pathological liars. Um, neither one of them can have an honest conversation about any aspect of themselves or their lives. Um, and yet they can't have a conversation about anything but themselves. I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's it, it, all the check boxes uh, for both of them line up perfectly. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. Do, 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 do. All right. Question. I'm just, again, just, just going down the line here. How are we doing? Wow. It's already 45 minutes in. How are you guys doing? Is this uh, show going okay? Um, all right. X Cyan. Can you think of who was the high ranking, beautiful blonde woman at AOA that was so good at coercive control in the early nineties? Very late one night, she coerced me to sign a C or contract. High-ranking, beautiful blonde at AO that was good in the early 90s. I do not know who you are referring to. Um, Sunny Jensen? She was the flag rep, I think, at AOLA. In the, I don't know if she was there in the early 90s, though. She was a young... I don't know. Not sure who you're referring to there. I, got, I joined the Sea Org in 1995. So prior to the 1995, I don't know all the ins and outs and personalities on the pack base. I didn't really start hitting my stride with that and learning who everybody was and what it was all about on that base until about 96. I arrived in uh, June 95 is when I started the, my EPF. So um, that's why I'm a little bit, I don't really know who you're talking about there. Okay. Um, going on down the line here. Would you, okay, Chris Wood, would you ever see a see-through sleeveless mesh shirt and a leather sailor's hat if someone donated enough money to your show? Oh, would I ever, would I ever wear them? A, a sleeveless mesh shirt and leather sailor's hat. No, I don't think I would do that. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity, though. But no, I don't, I don't think I would do that. I don't think anybody wants to see me in a sleeveless mesh shirt. In fact, you definitely don't want to see me in a sleeveless mesh shirt. All right. Uh, da, 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 da. Sleeveless mesh, yes. Um, oh, Cynthia asks, is it better to give you a super chat or PayPal? Plus, do you have Venmo? 
Um, I do not have Venmo. Maybe I should uh, investigate that. I do think that um, PayPal, I believe, takes less of a cut than YouTube does through the Super Chat. So I am all about the Super Chats, guys. And if you want to ask me a question that I'm definitely going to answer, throw it in a Super Chat. But um, but PayPal is um, is a great way to get me money as well. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Um, okay. Da-da-da-da-da. Okay, Jane asks, Chris, who do you consider your closest to from the exes? You seem to have great rapport with John Atak and Aaron Smith-Levin. Are there others who were in who you were close to and share the Scientology experience with? Oh, boy. Um, yeah, there's a lot of exes um, that I know that I'm connected with. But, hmm, I'd say John. I'd say John and I are probably the closest of friends as far as as far as personal relationships go between me and other ex Scientologists. Um, Aaron and I are 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 you know uh, pretty good friends. Um, I sometimes talk talk to Mike. I definitely count Leah as a friend. We text from time to time and and have a, and have conversations. But I think in terms of people who have opened up to me and I've opened up to them and we've had very meaningful personal private conversations as well as what you guys have seen on air, I would say John. Yeah, I, that's that's what I would say. Uh, interesting question. Nobody's ever asked me anything like that before. That's a good one. Um, okay. Leave my pony out of this. Oh my God, Chris. Would I ever join an outlaw biker gang? And if so, which one? I see you as a hardcore Hells Angels member. Uh, you know, if I was going to go join an outlaw biker gang, it would be the Hells Angels because they give Christmas gifts to the kids. I mean, you know, so of course I'd be there. Uh... Will I ever do a show about brawnies? You know, the grown men who are into My Little Pony? Uh, yeah, no, I won't be doing a show about brawnies. Thanks thanks for asking. All right. Um, oh, my God. Yeah, I just don't see myself doing anything with the brawnies. I just don't know that I would go there. I would, I would be interested in the conversation, actually. The, the more I think about it, the more I think there might be some interesting things to learn there. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, okay. Da, 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 da. Sorry, the great answers. Okay, all the work you do. Da, da, da. Couch. This is great. <laughs> I think most Scientologists... Chris Wood asks, what if a Scientologist came across Xenu fan fiction? Would they freak out? Um I, you know, again, remember, guys, 90, 95% of Scientologists have never heard of Xenu. They didn't reach OT3. They're not at that level. They don't, they don't know anything about it. Xenu is just another word to them. They don't, they, so they wouldn't really freak out. Uh, and OTs would not really be looking in the first place. <laughs> uh, okay. It's kind of loosey-goosey. I've never heard anyone use these phrases in British English. Curious where they're from. Oh, Shimoda's asking me about my language. Yeah. She says, I regularly hear you say in videos phrases like, it's not simple Simon or it's kind of loosey-goosey. I've never heard anyone use these phrases in British English. Curious where they're from. I, I don't know. 
Um, Simple Simon is uh, from a uh, poem. It's a it's an old limerick or poem or rhyme or something, if I remember right. Um, Simple Simon. Uh, no, not Simple Simon's Pizza. Jeez, you'd think there would be. Here we go. Nursery rhymes. Simple Simon. Um, Popular English rhyme. Simple Simon met a pie man going to the fair. Says Simple Simon to the pie man, let me taste your ware. And it goes on for about four more stanzas. So you can look that up. Um, but it's just an expression I grew up with. And I learned, uh, I think Hubbard used it in some of his lectures. Lucy Goosey, I, you know, I, I, it's uh weedy, Lucy Goosey, roly-poly. These are just Americanisms, I guess, I, I've picked up. Walkie-talkie. <laughs> <On the, laughs> uh, um, Brian Regan, a stand-up comedian, one of my favorite stand-ups, has a whole whole bit about walkie-talkie and uh and the the that expression and how it's uh how how it's a piece of military hardware that has the most ridiculous name and maybe we should start calling guns shooty tooties and this kind of thing so you know you guys can look that up um it's just that's where my language comes from i'm ridiculous uh just da 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 critical thing not born with yes thank you lauren thank you very much for that um all right another one from flint how much of hubbard's personality change was related to his bad motorcycle crash when he was anchored in the mediterranean region and the narcotics painkillers he started using after that um a bit i mean drugs medications powerful sedatives can have mind-altering effects over time hubbard was no stranger to drugs by that point though or alcohol and um, and it's thought or supposed by John Atack and others that Hubbard was quite the drug fiend or in a medication fiend up until up to that point. So that motorcycle accident and the the heart trouble and the other things that he experienced in the 70s was, you know, already building on an earlier accumulation of um, of drugs and toxins and stuff in his system. So as far as personality changes. Um, we can point to a few things in Hubbard's life, um, but I think it was a gradual thing. I think that you see Hubbard b having been a, a, a true believer in the occult and the occult framework and uh, Crowley's work. I mean, I think Hubbard said that uh, somewhere along the line that the Book of the Law, Hubbard, you know, Crowley's uh, drug-addled nonsense. Uh, I tried to read Book of the Law. It's, it's, a, it's a man. Uh, anyway, Hubbard apparently thought it was like just this wonderful, amazing uh, epiphany of a book. So I think Hubbard suffered from some pretty weird ideas for a very long time and, um, and was trying to, you know, deal with whatever he was trying to deal with. And we see major personality shifts with the, um, with getting fame and fortune in the fifties, uh, and then losing it again, and then gaining it back and and building it back up, but I think by the nineteen sixties is when we see a real script flip where Hubbard really goes all in on Scientology. Yet there are still indications that he was very aware that he was just conning people and just screwing around with them and using them for his own purposes. So. It's almost a bit of a bipolar situation, you know. It's going back and forth, and it's it's very hard to to figure out um, 
what made that guy tick? You know, there's just so many weird things. Okay. Uh, balance out the interesting. <laughs> no, I was not aware of the building in there in, in London called the Walkie Talkie. That is hilarious. Um, what if there was no such thing as a hypothetical situation? Is that like asking if there's no such thing as a hypothetical question? There's no such thing as a rhetorical question. Uh, I think I'm I think I'm getting caught up here. Uh Shimoda. Yes, I think I'm at the I think I'm at the bottom of the of the comments. I think I caught up. Do you think LRH had dementia, especially from the 70s, 80s onwards? Yes, I'm absolutely positive he did. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think that it was combined with a lot of other things, you know, like everything else with Hubbard, it's just complexity, complexity, complexity. Um, the man was a multi-layered, complex personality. He had a lot of things going on. And it's, um, you know, it's easy to go reductionist. It's easy to oversimplify anyone. But someone like Hubbard especially, I mean, there's just so many, so much to look at with that man. Just so much. All right. Where's Shelly? She's in the she's in the mountains of Lake Arrowhead, big slash big bear in the mountains of California. About in, uh, I think it's about forty five minutes or an hour north of San Jacinto. Uh, the CST property there is where we believe she is. Tony Ortega has done some amazing reporting on that. If you are actually curious about it, go look up Shelley Miscavige, Tony Ortega underground bunker, and you are going to have hours of reading ahead of you. All right. Um, yeah, so we're caught up and we're coming up on the end of an hour here. So I think we're about ready to wrap up. If, if somebody has uh, any last questions they want to fire at me in the comments, I will uh, be happy to pick them up. Uh, otherwise, I wanted to encourage. What do I want to encourage? I want you guys to watch my podcast from yesterday on the Christian apologetics. I would love for you guys to check out the Critical Conversation show that we did this Friday where we talked a little bit about coercive control. Some of you guys did watch that. You were there. It was awesome. Oh, this is what I wanted to say is I wanted to say to you guys, my critics, my, my we have something happening here. We've been doing the Critical Conversation show for just over a year. I think it's been about 14, 16 months now. And we have a real community forming. And I could not be more pleased about it. I was watching you guys talk to or interact with a new person. When I'm doing the live show, I'm glancing at the comments as I go, but I'm mainly talking to the callers or making whatever points I'm making when I'm monologuing, and I'm not seeing everything in the comments uh, when we do the Critical Conversations show. And I will often go back and watch the show again later that evening or the next day to sort of see what you guys were saying. And I see some of you guys helping new members, you know, new people come on. Oh, there's this Chris Shelton guy. I kind of like this show. This is fun. And and you guys are like this little community. Yeah, it's great. Da, da, da. And I just could not be more happy about that. I wasn't sure if I was going to get that happening on this uh, channel or on this show. Um, but I am, and it is, and it's fun. And I wanted to uh, just kind of throw out there that I, I noticed that. 
and I think it's great. I really do. Um, yeah, I just uh, the CS community. That's right. <laughs> the the C uh, org <laughs> uh, is what we got going on here. Um, oh my God, Xion, you got to be kidding me! Can I g explain and give an example of a service facsimile in two minutes? Um, goals problem mass. Yeah, you're funny. No, I will do that. Uh, I, I will do that some other time. Um, da, 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 da. Yes, I would. I, I would love to have gotten a hold of Pat Broker, but I. I guess that's just not in the cards. All right, guys. Uh, let's go ahead and wrap up the show for this week. This has been fun. I really, really have enjoyed your contributions and your support and uh, and your all your love. So thank you very much for being part of this. And let's, uh, let's see. I think you guys are going to enjoy that. We've already got the podcast in the can for this next week. And it's Scientology organizational stuff, more stuff with Cyprian. And I think you guys are really going to like it. I actually got Cyprian to talk some more this, this week too. So excellent stuff. And uh, let's go ahead and wrap up and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.